What we're doing today is basically I'm doing one of the messages from the Search the Scripture series that we covered this fall. Uh, partially had to do with I had commitments that I just couldn't get to uh, to uh, the the other the next messages in the Kingdom of God series. I really need about 14 hours a piece for study to get ready for, and I really had about six hours to prepare a message. So um, anyway. Uh, this uh, so the, there's about six people in the room that come some either quite regularly on Thursday nights or or just occasionally on Thursday nights that may have heard, or may not have heard this before. So I did add a lot of material that we did not cover for the sake of those who uh, might be hearing this for the second time. So um, in the search the scripture series, uh, we're this year we're going through the uh, the, the whole New Testament. And we started by covering a little, just a little brief overview of all the books, the Gospels and their function, the Book of Acts, the Epistles and what an epistle is and these kind of things. And then we uh, are going through the nine authors of the New Testament. And we'll talk in a minute about why that's important. But uh, uh, we're actually covering sort of the life of each author of the New Testament. So... Let, uh, one of the things we do in the Search the Scripture series is um, part one, that is chapter one, because many of the chapters are quite a few weeks. Uh, we've been on chapter 22 for the whole of fall semester, <laughs> and uh, uh, we're on like 22H now or something like that. Um, but uh, chapter one of the series was is called... Um, the Bible on the importance of Bible study. And it's around 55 to 70 scriptures, somewhere in that range, organized by 14 topics or themes about what the Bible has to say about why you should know the Bible. And uh, it's it's uh, if, a resource that if you've never used, I would encourage you to use it. Uh, it will help you build more of a value of, uh, put a place a higher value on studying the Bible. If you take Jesus's parable of the kingdom in Matthew 13, of course, he gives seven parables of the kingdom, but the first one called the parable of the soil, or no, usually known as the parable of the sower and the seed, but it's all about the types of soil. Three types of people who heard the word under-evaluated the word. And really, that's a big issue in your Christian life. We are all in a spiritual war uh, with our flesh, with the world system, with the devil, to under-evaluate Scripture. And Satan is actually trying to kill you by keeping you from God's word. And uh, uh, in his word is life, and the life is the light of men. And so uh, we start each time by taking one of those scriptures and talking about it. So this, today I chose 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. Uh, I've blended here the New American Standard and the ESV so ESV says, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, etc. Um, the word God breathed, uh, theonoustos, uh, in the Greek just means, uh, theos means God, noustos is we get pneumatic or, or uh, you know, is the word that means breath, spirit, or wind. It's the, the word for spirit, like Holy Spirit. And uh, the New American Standard uh the, the words inspired by God are actually just that one Greek word, theos, uh, or theonoustos. And uh, from, those, from that scripture, um, if you remember in the Kingdom of God series, chapter 3a, we talked about the plenary 
inspiration or the plenary infallibility of all Scripture. That means God has fully inspired the Scriptures. Every bit is inerrant. Every bit is infallible. Theologians differentiate between infallibility and inerrancy. I did not go into that much detail in in that, but we talked about how the Scripture is historically accurate and inerrant. Um, and there, uh, and it's, it's, uh, given to us by God. But what I want us to understand is one of the most important doctrines of how the God did this, the mode of how he did it. God did not just take the 40 some authors of scripture, uh, that, that basically over a 2000 year period on three different continents in three different languages, God wrote his word to us. And he, the, the 40 instruments that he used, they did not just take dictation. It's not as simple as that. And, that, and it's, uh, that's very important for you to understand. It wasn't just like uh, a secretary taking a letter from, from his boss or her boss or whatever. Um, it's, uh, it uh, is much more complicated than that. And in, in the doctrine of, of inerrancy of Scripture is simply this, that God actually set up the circumstances, the culture, the timing, the time period. That's why so many of the prophets will say, like Isaiah starts off by saying, in the year of such and such during Uzziah's reign and so forth, uh, God set up all the situations uh, in terms of the, the country, the culture, the timing, what was going on in history uh, as he progressively unfolded his purposes, his eternal decree in the kingdom of God through his prophets and in the, in the New Testament through his apostles. And so uh, he also did so in such a way that he caused each of the writers to be created in a specific time and place created with specific gifts and talents, with specific tendencies and, and motivations, and he sanctified and worked into their life in such a way that they were able to uh, at least attain a, a perfection of sanctification enough to be the vessel, uh, at least in their writings, for his perfect inerrancy. And it's an amazing doctrine if you understand it. And every born-again Christian who has Jesus Christ in their heart, that the Spirit of God bears witness to you that that is true. Someone who doubts that, uh, you have to really go back to the, the root of whether or not Christ is in their heart. Because with the receiving of Jesus Christ, you actually receive a revelation that he is the living Word of God and that he is that the written word of God is all about him from beginning to end, and is complete, infallible, and, and inerrant. Does that make sense? So, with that, this idea of the mode of trend of of uh, dic- is not dictation, but it's more intricate and complicated than that. I want to read Second Corinthians four seven. Uh, Paul says, "But we have this treasure in earthen vessels." Uh, ESV says jars of clay. I believe there's actually a Christian uh, pop culture band called Jars of Clay. So that, uh, based on that scripture, of course, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Uh, ESV says so the surpassing greatness of the power it belongs to God and not of of us. Oh, little folder. Oh well. Um, so. Um, 
So what you know what this what is going on is is something important for all of us to understand this how it works in your own life. Scripture always has levels of fulfillment, and every person who's born again of God, uh, who's progressing in their calling, hopefully getting baptized in the Spirit, water baptized, uh, partnering with and, and becoming a covenant member of a body of Christians. Uh, growing in their knowledge of God and growing in the, the, the manifest character of Christ so that you can become a fisher of men and actually begin to be, bear fruit. That's what it acts. Jesus defined following him as becoming a fisher of men. If you're not progressing in how in being a part of a community of believers that are fishing for men, you're really following a Jesus of your own imagination. And so as that happens, one of the things that you experience when you're anointed of God to prophesy, when you're anointed of God to teach the word, when you're anointed of God to lead worship, when you're anointed of God to lead someone to Christ, uh, when you're anointed of God to disciple people, anytime you experience part of the call of God on your life in such a way as the life of Christ is working through you, you experience this verse. You begin to realize, wow, God just used me in this guy situation despite of who I am. And it's amazing if you really, if you begin to understand the doctrine of sin in scripture and God begins to show you the logs in your eye and you've made that transition that's always a mark of someone growing in the Lord that you're that you're more focused on the logs in your eye than you are on the speck in other people's eyes and you're you're beginning to understand grace and the depth of sin and that where sin abounds, grace is, abounds all the more. The more you realize that, the more you realize that it's to God's greater glory that he works through you and me. Because if he did it directly, that would be less impressive. I'll pick on my good friend John Gray since he read to us today. Then that he took a guy like John Gray or myself, despite the the sins, the 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 brokenness, the the wrong emphasis, the wrong priorities, the what all the lack of, lack of maturity and sanctification that we have, and yet he sanctified us enough that enough of his life and glory came through that someone else came to Christ or grew in the Lord or was encouraged in the things of God or, or whatever. That's amazing. And God does that to show his greater glory. It's That's a lot more di difficult proposition than uh, just doing it direct. Does that make sense? Now, when it comes to Scripture, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with uh, the guys like the Apostle Paul, for instance, one of the nine authors we covered in this fall in, in our Thursday night classes. Um, Paul was a murderer. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees which means, if you understand their ideas and their doctrines, he was completely performance-based, not at all grace-based, and he became the apostle of grace. He was completely cessationist against the work, present working of the Holy Spirit, and he became known as the apostle of the Holy Spirit. He was a murderer who gave life to thousands. He was, uh, part of being a Pharisee was he hated Gentiles, and he became the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I, I need you today as we go through this to think about your sins, to think about your weaknesses. Maybe uh, you're coming to the Lord and you don't read very well. 
Maybe you come to the Lord and you've got anger management issues. Maybe you come to the Lord and you've got irresponsibility, immaturity type of issues. What, we want, what I want you to see today as we cover the life of Matthew is that God desires, if you'll let him, to take your greatest sins, weaknesses, trials, temptations, and shortcomings and make them the very point that the life and ministry of Christ flows through you to heal others and, to, and ultimately the nations. And Matthew is a great example of that. And one of the great things that you understand is, you know, I, I work with brothers who maybe don't take the counsel they should have taken or uh, they make this kind of mistake or that kind of mistake. And sometimes they go on a detour that's going to take four or five years to overcome. Uh, but the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And God will continue to work with you. You know, we have this tendency uh, because we, you know, you get cured of this a lot when you have your own children. You, you, you know what? Your children are rebellious. They're immature. They're foolish. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from them. And, and you know what? You don't ever give up on them. And hopefully you have the wisdom to see the end product uh, by faith long before it comes about. So let's get into this today. I want to look at uh, this idea of the mode of, of how God inspires Scripture is that he actually created the individuals in a particular time and situation and culture. And uh, political issues are important, therefore, and what the religious Milieu, that's a French word for like the zeitgeist, that's a German word for like worldview or the, um, you know, the, the kind of social atmosphere of a time. You know, we have a time where um, re the religious atmosphere is in, in our country is shallow and it's m misguided and, and there's lots of problems. Uh, but Jesus came into such a situation. The things the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the various parties in Israel believed were just way off base, very much similar to our, our day and age. Um, so you need, we need to understand the intended audience. Uh, there's linguistic uh, issues. Uh, one of the things you need to understand, for instance, as we go through the authors of the New Testament, seven of the nine were Greeks, or I'm sorry, were Hebrews, who were writing in Greek, and Greek was not their first primary language. With the, we, you know, Paul grew up in Tarsus and grew up well-educated, so, but I doubt that even he, Hebrew was probably still more his primary language than Greek. And for the other writers of the New Testament, except for Luke, no one, when I say nine authors, I'm actually throwing you a little curve because no one knows who wrote Hebrews. So it could be that there's eight authors, that Hebrews could have been written by one of the other authors. But of the seven, of the eight that we know, one, Luke, was a Greek. And Greek was his, was his first and primary language that he was educated in. Amazingly, the others, their primary language was Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, uh, the, some of you guys from Kenya, and definitely Anvesh, can understand this be better than most of us Americans who only know English. But when you translate from one language to another, not every language has the same cultural ideas. Do we follow that? 
Um, and the further the cultures apart are apart, the more there's there's no overlap. So when uh, when you uh, I remember having a Bible study with a guy from communist China who uh, had learned English very well and he got all A's while he was here at Wright State and a master's degree in engineering, very bright guy. But he, especially the first year, we, we had Bible studies for about a year and a half. In the first year, he had to read both the English version and the Chinese version and then think about it for a while. And I had to just sit there and let him think about it for five or 10 seconds before we discussed it because he sort of had Chinese and English don't have the same concepts. And they just don't translate well from one from another. And so uh, that's a consideration here. So all of these are important, and that's why looking at the authors for, you know, people don't do that. Like we just read the Bible, but we don't think of the step back and think of it more holistically. I would encourage you, if you get to know who each author is and a little bit about their life, you'll have more insight into their writings. And that's what we're going to attempt to do with Matthew uh, in the uh, remaining time I have. Um, I'm just going to read uh, two scriptures about the, cat, the calling of Matthew. One is from Matthew 9 and the other is from Luke. I uh, hope you know, most of you probably already know that, that, Luke, or that Matthew was, was called uh, Levi prior to Christ calling him. Matthew 9, 9 through 14 says, As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, is, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn, learn, that's a process, what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, the letters CF mean compare, uh, so you can look those other scriptures up later if you want. Luke 5 uh, gives us the callings of the first five disciples, uh, Simon, Andrew, John, James, and then Matthew, or Levi. And uh, it gives us a lot more detail about their callings than most of the Gospels do. And Luke uh, 5 says this, after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector. Key on the fact that Matthew was a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Now, here's what I need you to understand. I want to bring out, hopefully I'll have enough time in the uh, 12 minutes I have left to bring out two points about Matthew's calling. And uh, here's, here, here's the deal that I want to hopefully can, can bring out. I need you to understand what a tax collector was. Um, most, you know, if you watch the History Channel or the Learning Channel or uh, PBS or some of these channels, I don't have cable, but I get PBS. They're always having these things on World War II. It's like the most popular history subject on, at least as far as television history. Uh, now, Lots of people don't, I, I ask uh, lots of young people today if they know what I mean by Vichy France, and I always get like, no, no, what, what does that mean? But, and I scratch my head and wonder how that could be. But anyway, it's when the Germans, uh, through what was called Blitzkrieg Warfare, ran over France in a matter of a few weeks, uh, they conquered France, and the French government and the French armies were rescued off the beaches of Normandy and so forth by the English Navy. And so 
what little left was left of the French armies and the French government was in, in, in England. And the Germans were ruling France. And they took a page out of ancient times that went back to the Medes, the Persians, the, the Greeks. Alexander the Great, for instance, used this, where he, he, uh, many conquerors have realized if you conquer a people and you want to rule them, it's a lot easier to rule them through pe their own people. So the Germans took French people who basically had no love for France. They had love for themselves and love for money and love for power. And they set up a puppet government where the German uh, SS and the Gestapo and so forth was running France through, but the face the French people saw was the French governors underneath these Nazis, right? Now that's what Matthew was. Every French person hated the Vichy French government because they were extorting money from the people. They were ruling the people cruelly. Uh, it was barbaric. People were being shot and so forth. The Romans had conquered Israel, and they would crucify people. They would, uh, they would cr uh, crush all rebellion, and they set up Hebrew guys to tax the people, and the way they made their money was by overtaxing poor people who could barely afford the taxes in the first place and shaking them down for every last penny they could. And that's how Zacchaeus that you see in the New Testament, who repents when Christ invites himself over to lunch at Zacchaeus's house, and that's how Matthew lived. In other words, he was the scumbag of all scumbags. If you want to compare it to something, he was beyond, uh, you know, like we, we, a lot of people in our church are involved in the human trafficking issue and so forth. And, you know, men enslave women and, and uh, get them to be drug addicts and beat them into submission and everything else so they can process them. Matthew was worse than that. He was raping his people for his own profit and power. Think on that a minute. There, you know, we uh, are a church that tries to work with uh, uh, troubled people, and therefore we sometimes work with very sinful people, and I'm probably the chief among them. And nobody in our church is as much of a dirtbag as Matthew was. We don't have any sinners that rise to the level of what a, what a sack of trash Matthew was. When he before Jesus called him, I, you need to get that because you need to see your own calling. So so there's so much performance based today that people are afraid to admit who they are. But unless you admit that you're blind, deaf, dumb, stupid, wrongly motivated, uh, selfishly ambitious, greedy, uh, self righteous, prideful, lying sack of manure. You cannot make any progress in grace. And Matthew was worse than whatever you are or have been. And he became one of Jesus' tightest followers. Uh, God delights in taking your areas of weakness, sin, trial, tribulation, and making his, them his vehicles of ministry. 
So when you have fallen for the 6,473rd time in uh, being too lackadaisical about your devotions or being too defensive or whatever, ask God for grace to change and don't give up. One of the big, biggest things that's holding back what they call the millennial generation is what, when you've had lack of fatherhood, you have lack of grace to be able to just admit how messed up you are because you're kind of afraid if anyone really knows how dark it is in there, they won't like you very much. But Jesus loves you with all your darkness. He knows that when you open the closet of your heart, it's full of spiders and diarrhea and vomit and it's just disgusting and he loves you he actually in one of the prophets he compares uh us before we come to christ as being in our menstrual blood being like afterbirth like if we really see who we are it's not pretty I had a, there's been a lot of people who had the flu in our church this week, and I asked them, well, how are you doing? And they just, they just uh, a couple of them actually said, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> and, I, and I said, thank you very much. I don't need, I don't want any more details than that. <laughs> uh, you know, um, if you could, I, I guess I want you to be encouraged from the life of Matthew, because not only did Jesus call him, and he became one of the 12 apostles, he was used to write the, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospels progress this way. Matthew and Mark are written to primarily Jewish audiences. Luke is written to the, all, the whole world and the Gentiles. And John is written to the whole cosmos, the whole universe, <laughs> and uh, as far as their emphasis. But Matthew is, is the transitional book on purpose that, you know, like today, if you... Everyone always tells people, read John first. I don't, I say that's nonsense. Read Matthew, and it started in Matthew 1 and read the whole New Testament. And then on your second time through, start in Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 and read the whole thing through. Uh, and the, the early church put it in that order on purpose. You've got to come to grips with Matthew if you're going to come to grips with Christ. Matthew uh, wrote the greatest love letter there is to the Jewish people that, that basically explained. Uh, I've got some of the scriptures here somewhere. Uh, let's flip over to, uh, to point B at the bottom uh, in where I have Matthew 16, 18, etc. Um, I will build my church, Jesus said them to the Pharisees in his great confrontation with them that goes from Matthew 21 through 23. Did you never read in the scriptures? I love when he says that to the, to the Pharisees. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Uh, this came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Matthew is basically saying that in the New Testament, when you see that the end of the age has come, that's not about the end times. It's about the end of the age of God's working with Israel and the beginning of the age of the kingdom coming through his new covenant nation people called the church. That's, that's what that's always about. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about. That's what Matthew uh, 21 through, through 26 is about. Uh, he's he's going to take the kingdom 
away from Israel. He's done with them. In Matthew 21, he's so mad that he says, my house is to be a house of prayer. In Matthew 23, he says, your house is left to you desolate. So what he's saying after his dramatic confrontation of the eight woes in Matthew 23 is, I'm done with Israel. I am the final prophet that stands on the shoulders of Abel through, uh, what is Zechariah? Uh, I, you know, I am the message of Isaiah. I am the message of Ezekiel. I'm the message of Hosea, Daniel, Malachi, whatever. I have had it. And I am going to destroy you. And that, and he just explains in the Mount Olivet Discourse that's in Matthew 24 and Mark 14, and I forget what chapter it is in Luke. He explains that armies are going to surround Jerusalem and destroy the temple and destroy the people, and he's going to build his church, his new nation, his people, and he's going to take the kingdom away from Israel and give it to a new nation that produces the fruit thereof. And contrary to modern eschatology, he's not going to lead Israel back to Christ after he comes back, but he's going to graft them back in by faith through the gospel, not by resetting up temple sacrifices in a physical kingdom nation of Israel, but by revealing himself primarily through the book of Matthew to biological Israel. And many of them will be converted by the thousands. It's already happening. More, more, more Israelites have come to Christ through the gospel in the past hundred years than has happened since the first hundred years of the church. And the, the rate of that is increasing. So Matthew, who is a traitor to Israel, if you know who Benedict Arnold was, he's, he's more despicable than Benedict Arnold in American history. He is the, the scummest scumbag I can tell you about. He is used of God when God's done processing him to say to, to Israel, I love you. I, I love you so much. I'm severely chastising you. I'm fulfilling everything that Deuteronomy 28 predicted, and I'm, I'm sending you into captivity. But I will turn you again to myself. And you will receive the gospel through, the, through, through your king, the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. It won't be about temple sacrifice or a restoration of a geopolitical nation or anything else. It'll be about them joining the kingdom of God through Christ. I wish I had more time. Uh, this, you know, kind of worked out pretty weird that I had to uh, wait on the printer and different things. But hopefully you got this, this much out of this. Um, Take whatever area that you really struggle with and take it before God and just say, hey, uh, you know, God, uh, I can't do this. I can't make progress in this, but you can, and he will. And he is, he is, he is above and, and more than any sin, weakness, limitation, or temptation that you've ever experienced. Amen.